Well, good morning. And here we go again. This service is being recorded on Saturday morning. It was our desire to do a live stream for you tomorrow, well, today as you're watching this, for Sunday. But we ran into some technical difficulties with a piece of equipment we ordered for that purpose, and rather than rush into an alternate solution to the problem, we decided just to record again. And that's actually worked out fairly well the last couple times, Wednesday from my office, last Sunday from my home. Uh, so uh, I wanted to explain why we are so eager to do live stream in the first place, and it's a pretty simple explanation, and the explanation actually forms a good part of the message this morning. The idea of live streaming, and again, I know this is being made available to people outside of Living Word Family Church, but the idea is that we can do this thing together. I also know that our last two messages that went out to you did not include praise and worship, and a big thanks to the praise and worship team for coming out and doing this this morning. Uh, and, but you know, we put a high premium on praise and worship in this church. It's important. It's a, it's a major reason that we get together. We don't come together just to hear a sermon from me. And I know that some of you may have fast-forwarded through this, uh, through the praise and worship maybe to get to this part. I want to encourage you not to do that. There's a, there's a reason we included this. It might feel funny to you at home, singing along, but sing along. This feels funny to me. I'm preaching to a large, largely empty sanctuary this morning, uh, but our songs, our praises are still a sweet sound in the ears of our Lord, and he still inhabits the praises of his people. So make sure you do that. Um, the, the idea of streaming, uh, the, the praise and worship thing, we've heard testimony after testimony uh, from people who have experienced healings, received prophetic words, deliverances, many different kinds of manifestations of God's grace during praise and worship. And I want you to be, I want you to believe that God will absolutely manifest himself in that way in your home, with your family. I know some of you are in the habit of playing praise and worship throughout the day, uh, in your homes, in your cars, and this is still different. We're participating in a praise and worship service remotely, a formal praise and worship service. Again, the value is that we are doing it together at the same time. Uh, and that is why the email that most of you received, although it includes a link that allows you to watch this service at your convenience, also urges you, uh, encourages you to tune in at a specific time. There's something comforting knowing that uh, our local body of believers is, again, doing this together. Uh, I've got the praise and worship team sitting in here. You can't see them, but I can. And they're sitting more or less in their usual spots. And I asked them to do that, number one, so I at least have somebody to preach to. And number two, but I can also picture you sitting in your spots. I, can, I feel like that lady on Romper Room. I see Duke and I see uh, Mom and I see all these other people out there. I can see you. I can imagine you here. I actually saw a video or a picture from some church where they actually had pictures of the people on the seats, and a lot of people made fun of it. I kind of like that idea. I think it was pretty, uh, I appreciate the effort that went into that. Anyway, not saying we're going to do that, but I understand why. Now, uh, there is something, you can call it mysterious if you want, but there is something powerful about doing this together, even remotely, because it is the closest, unfortunately, for right now that we can get to actually assembling. And that is something I do want to talk to you about in a little more detail this morning. You know the Greek word where we get the word church is the word ekklesia. Many of you know that. And that's been translated as called out ones, but more accurately and more commonly as simply the assembly. 
This is what ecclesia or the church means. We can talk about the church uh, universal or the church at large as a way of describing the body of Christ or all Christians at all times and in all places. But actually it's more accurate to just use the term body of Christ or maybe even better family of God to describe that because the church, Paul himself referred to the churches of Galatia. So in the sense of the church, church universal, there's only one church, but the New Testament clearly makes, uh, clear, uh, makes clear that there is uh, there are more than one church, and we, we view the church as a local body of believers. I have a good, a dear friend of mine who is a pastor, and he is passionate about the fact that biblically speaking, the church is visible and local. You will never ever hear this guy say, I'll be down at the church today, or we're having some work done on the church. He always but always calls it the meeting house. What, uh, what many of us call the church, even I call it the church from time to time, because I know what people mean, but it's actually, of course, where the church meets. That doesn't make the meeting house insignificant or unimportant, and it certainly doesn't take away from the crucial aspect of actually meeting. This is what makes this whole pandemic, this shelter in place, so distressing to me. I can honestly say I haven't experienced a moment's fear about this disease itself. I'm convinced that we can take it seriously. We can exercise wisdom and even caution without getting into fear. But I hate not meeting. I hate not gathering. Uh, Our gathering together really should be the focal point of our week. And there are things God does in the assembly that we often don't make time for or simply can't do outside of the assembly. And I want to look at a couple passages from Scripture that illustrate this. First, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 20. You remember, I'm sure, the basic outline, the framework of the book of Judges. This is when, after the Israelites, the children of Israel, had entered and begun to inhabit the land of promise, but before the monarchy was established. The last verse in Judges characterizes this time period. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The setup for what we're about to read in chapter 20 is actually a terrible crime that was committed in Judges chapter 19. And I'm not going to share the details of that crime. It's gruesome, and you can read it later for yourself. But the crime was actually committed by men from the tribe of Benjamin who were living in the town of Gibeah. The rest of Israel, when they were presented with, uh, well, forensic evidence of the crime, sent a large ad hoc army to Gibeah to arrest the men, actually demanded that the people of Gibeah turn over the guilty party uh, parties so that they could put them to death. But the Benjamites in Gibeah decided to fight rather than to extradite. And they were outnumbered. They were pretty significantly outnumbered, but they were skillful warriors. And the way this is going to play out is like 26,000 special operations guys going up against 400,000 National Guardsmen. And I'm not saying that to this Guardsman. I was a Guardsman myself, remember. Uh, But that's what it's going to look like. We'll pick up the account in Judges chapter 20. Verse 18. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. 
And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed a battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then... All the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. And they were indeed overwhelmingly victorious. An exciting play-by-play of the battle is recounted in the remainder of of that chapter, and it's really worth reading. But this is a confusing passage, and it's a confusing passage because of this simple question. Why did they suffer those first two defeats? Did God lie? Did, didn't God tell them all three times to go? Let's look at it a little more closely. I know we started reading in verse 18, but if you go back to verse 11, you'll see that they had already gathered together. They had already set themselves in battle array. And in verse 18, it says, even though it says the children of Israel inquired at the house of God who to send first, and, and you know, God told them uh, Judah first, this is, or at least was, used to be the fight song of Judah Christian school. I don't know if it said, send Judah first. Anyway, that's where, that's where they get this. But notice at that time, they did not ask him anything else. They didn't ask him for any guidance. They didn't ask him anything like, oh, say, should we be doing this? It's just, who should we send first? We're going. Uh, they were going, and they sort of threw God a bone by uh, uh, seeking his advice, at least about the order of battle. And God did say Judah first, but ultimately it didn't matter. I don't know why God, God chose Judah. There might be some spiritual significance to that, but it, it, I, I didn't explore that because I'm going a different direction, and, and in the interest of time, I want to keep this short. But I really do see this answer as, it doesn't matter who you send first, just go. Sure, send Judah. And what was the result? A huge defeat. 22,000 men lost. The second time, in verse 22, we see that they set up in battle array again. This time they wept before God and said, shall we try it again? And he said, go. 18,000 men lost. Now notice, again, they already had their minds made up. 
They were already in battle array. And again, the question was not, what should we do, but shall we go? And if that seems like a petty distinction to you, it's not. Remember, a lot of these harsh, harsh lessons that we see in the Old Testament are for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have, ends of the ages have come. They didn't ask. When they went the second time, they didn't ask, Lord, what went wrong? What did we miss? They didn't say, well, what do you want us to do? They just said, shall we go again? And again, they had already made up their minds to go again because they were already in battle array. It, what, the way I picture this is the, the armed men, the people who are going to be doing the fighting, they didn't come to the house of the Lord. A contingent of the tribes of Israel went and inquired while the army stayed there ready to fight. The third time in verse 26, it says, all the children of Israel, and then repeats it, all the people. This is clearly not specified before. And they didn't just go and say, shall we go again? They wept, they fasted, they made offerings. What were they doing? They were worshiping. They assembled at the house of the Lord and they worshiped. And then they asked through the appointed priest, shall we go again or should we cease? They never even mentioned that before, that possibility before. And at that time, the Lord says to them, go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. This time, it wasn't just a yes or no answer. This time, they had a promise from God. And this time, they were victorious. When they all gathered in the right place, with the right attitude, and with the appointed leaders, they received the right guidance and a promise of victory. This is one of my many favorite passages in the Old Testament, and we could spend some time dissecting it, but I'm only focusing on one thing. They got the victory when they gathered. In the book of Acts, we see another extraordinary occurrence. This, of course, is after the ascension of Jesus and after he had instructed his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father, after which they would receive the power to be his witnesses. In chapter 2, of course, very famous passage, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then, of course, Peter, operating under the influence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, goes out and preaches a sermon that results in 3,000 conversions. And we'll see a little bit later on, you'll see a little bit later on in the book of Acts, that um, Peter and John, after they had been arrested and forbidden to preach Jesus, they went back uh, in Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions, some translations say company, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and why, and the people plotted vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you 
anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They gathered together, they assembled, and they raised their voice to God in complete agreement with one accord. Now, did God ever show himself strong on behalf of people who were separated from the assembly? Absolutely. You know he did. Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison, they began to pray and sing hymns in the middle of the night. And what happened? A great earthquake happened. And their chains fell off and the doors opened. And uh, the result ultimately was that the jailer and his whole family were saved. Earlier in the book of Acts, Peter is uh, in chains, sleeping between two guards the night before his execution. And an angel appeared and rescued him. It's worth noting, by the way, that there was an assembly elsewhere praying for Peter. And of course, Paul wrote much of the New Testament as a prisoner, separated from the churches he founded and longed to see again. But what I want you to notice is that in these cases, they were separated from the assembly against their will. None of them forsook the assembling of of themselves together. God is not going to hold it against a prisoner for not being able to assemble with the rest of the body. We, we certainly must cling, especially in these days, cling to the promise of Jesus himself that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But there absolutely is power, a special kind of power and manifestation in the assembly. So why am I bringing this up now? When we are essentially unable to assemble. I'm bringing this up to remind you that even though we can thank God for the technology and the ability um, to do the things we're doing right now, to connect this way, the best this can ever be is a supplement for the assembly. Maybe one of the good things that's going to come out of this is our ability to reach people beyond the walls of this church, this meeting house. But it doesn't mean that God sent this plague to get that done. It's simply an example of God bringing something good out of something uh, that is meant for evil. Our end game needs to be gathering again, assembling again. This needs to be a central point of our prayers. The church is indeed visible and local, and we are commanded in Scripture, commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Yes, we are praying for the stricken. We are praying for for the vulnerable. And yes, we are praying and looking for ways to be a blessing and a help to a hurting community. But yes, we pray and pray for and look forward to the day when we can assemble again so that the body can be together for mutual encouragement, correction, and edification. God is not going to withhold his blessing because we are honoring those who are in authority. But remember, we are not doing this simply to obey some random executive order. This is a manifestation for right now of our love for our neighbors. Wash your hands, stay at home if you can, 
I can't predict how the world will continue to react and respond to this plague. But God does see the end from the beginning. You need to make him your shelter as you shelter in place. Uh, Folks, and this is really aimed more at those who have not made a commitment to Christ. God has indeed promised protection, provision, and healing to those who are his. So it is super important to know whether or not you are his. Ask yourself that question. You know, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died and paid a price so that all could be saved. But we all have a decision to make. It's still a choice. If you acknowledge your need for a savior, and if you say and mean it when you say it, that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And salvation isn't just uh, escape and rescue from hell. It isn't just the assurance from heaven, although it certainly is those things. It means that you are made righteous in the eyes of God, and therefore you are qualified to receive all of the promises that God made to the righteous. Will you make him your savior today? Will you make him your Lord today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise Jesus gave us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for the constant presence of Jesus Christ in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We also thank you for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We especially thank you for our church, our local body of believers whom you have given us to come alongside in our mission to represent Jesus Christ to our community and to the world. Lord, we continue to stand against this virus and stand against the havoc that is wreaking on our world. And we continue to declare the victory that you have given us. We want to hear from you. Open our ears so that we can hear you speak to us and impart to us supernatural wisdom and how to combat this thing. And meanwhile, we do trust you and claim by faith your promises of healing, protection, and provision. Lord, I pray now that you do what only you can do and pierce the heart of anyone who does not know you as Lord, as God, as Father, and impress upon them their need for salvation. Grant them the wisdom grant them the humility and the boldness to come before you and accept your generous offer of eternal life. If there is anyone out there who would like today, even right now, to become a member of the family of God, please pray this with me. God in heaven, I am a sinner in need of salvation. I believe that Jesus died to purchase that salvation for me. I believe that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead to declare your victory over sin and the grave. By the faith that you have given me, I receive my salvation and proclaim that Jesus Christ is not only the Lord, but my Lord. Amen. If you prayed this prayer, we want to hear from you whether you are a part of Living Word Family Church or not. I want you to have a great week. Keep speaking the word over you and your household. Remember, we love you. We are praying for you. God loves you even more. Please keep your eyes on him.